you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. I know we're, we're coming the slow way to Corinthians. That's where we're headed, and that's really where we are, though we're in 1 Peter 3 today. I want us to do something, and uh, I'm not prone to exaggeration, and this is no exaggeration. I have, I have been looking forward to this preaching a message like this for a long time, and I do think this is probably, Battleground Community Church, one of the most important messages that I've preached here. Uh, this is also one of the most difficult, not only for me, but for you. Uh, so, you know, maybe you need to shake your head, or I started to do a head, shoulders, knees, and toes, but we worked hard yesterday, and I don't know whether I could do that right now. And uh, so stand with me as we read 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, this is really our, our text of application. We're going to start at the end and then come back to this later, but I want us to read this. 1 Peter 3, verse 13, speaking to the church, to believers. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Lord, uh, help us. We are in a culture that gives us so much information and news and rumors and stories. We're in an age that's just inundated with this and our lives are constantly changing. Life seems to be one little or big traumatic event after another. And so, Lord, today, settle us. Give us the ability to honestly see the Corinthian culture and honestly see ours and understand what is our responsibility to receive your word and to apply it into the culture in which we live. Lord, help us. We need it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So as believers, we must live the gospel life as we engage the present age with gospel boldness and grace. So you see in our main idea, there's two things. There's the life to be lived for Christ. There's also a culture to be engaged for Christ. We talked about this last week, living the gospel life. We defined it. Let me define it again. Living the gospel life is living for Christ out of the spiritual blessings given by Christ in the age in which we live. We live in this age. We don't live in the Corinthian age. We live in this one. And yet we're reading. We're about to start. We're about to go to Corinthians and begin to read a letter that was written to a church that lived in a different age than us. We, we've got some work to do. Have you ever had an 80-year-old and a 20-year-old sit down and try to have a conversation? <laughs> you get the idea that there's a... There's like a Grand Canyon right here. There's a gap. It's social, it's cultural, it's generational, it's a problem. 
How do you bridge that gap? In the same way that you have to try to bridge that gap, in our age, we have this kind of problem when we open up a letter of the Bible and begin to read a letter that was written to a church in an age that we do not live in. And honestly, besides maybe watching some movies, most of us don't understand the Greco-Roman age. We live in Kings Mountain, North Carolina, and the Corinthians lived in Corinth in the Roman age. We live in the American age. And it seems to be, at least on the front end of this, there's a wide canyon. And I am not about jumping over it. We are about building a bridge over it. That's what we're doing. That's why I'm doing this. I'm letting you, as it were, look at my notes of how I prepare a sermon. I do not dare get up and preach a message lest I understand the context and the culture of the, where I'm reading from. It's critical. I can't apply it into your life unless I understood how the Lord was applied it into the Corinthians' life. So let's build the bridge. A couple of introductory points. I'm going to use words today. Don't say, oh no, he's using a big word. I want you to understand these words. These words are the age that you live in, and it is the age that is coming. Every age after the fall is to some degree both secular and pluralistic. Some greater than others. What is the fall if it wasn't, I'm going to live life my way without God? Secularism defined this way. It is a system which seeks to interpret and order life on principles taken solely from this world without an appeal to belief in God and a future life. In other words, they say, a secularist says, I can do my life just fine without God factoring into it. But we also live in the age of pluralism. Religious pluralism is defined this way. It is the belief that every religion is true. Every, each provides a genuine encounter with the ultimate. Notice ultimate, capital U. One may be better than the others, but all are adequate. This is both a secular age and a pluralistic age. Generally speaking, pluralism believes this way. Whatever is sincerely believed is true. You can be a passionate Nazi or sadist or believe the world is flat. But as long as you're sincere, that's true for you. That's fine. I can say nothing to you. That's pluralism. Brothers and sisters, this is the reality of the age that we live in. First point. We live in this age. Second the gospel life is rooted in love for God. John 14, 15 says this, if, and you know it by heart. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. You see, for love for Christ always grounds, it roots our obedience to Christ. Our love for Christ roots and grounds our love for our neighbor. So you see the problem. You have, a, you have a culture that can believe it can do life without factoring God into it. And if he wants to, it's his business. He believes what he believes about God or not God. And it's nothing you can say about it. And here we are as Christians who root everything we do in the love of Christ. You see this? Brings up our third introductory point. This will bring suffering in this age. 
It will. This will bring a collision in this age. This is what Peter's getting at in 1 Peter 3. He says, most of the time, do what is good. Verse 13, you're not going to suffer. But even if you should, he goes on later, and we'll get to it later, that says, when you are slandered. Well, that's not a pleasant situation. Goes on next chapter and speaks of suffering again. This will bring suffering. So here's what we want to do. There's two banks, as it will, with a, with a river or canyon in between. One is the Greco-Roman age, and one is ours. So let's look at both this morning. What did it look like to live the gospel life in a Greco-Roman age, a culture? Well, turn with me to Acts 15. Hopefully you'll begin to see what I'm talking about, because we oftentimes read text. They seem to be sort of random and what they're saying because we don't understand the culture to which it was written and what the Christians were struggling with. Acts 15 is a basic application of what we looked at last week with Ephesians 2. That Christians are made up of Jews and Gentiles. People who were both enemies of each other and enemies of God. But because of Christ, now they're one family. And family has problems. Amen? <laughs> you know, families have problems. They're having some problems, some family issues. That all of a sudden, these, these verse uh, 5, you have some Pharisees, some people associated with them from the party of the Pharisees. says, hold on, you Gentile Christians. You need to be circumcised. You need to do this. But circumcision was the main issue going on. And all of a sudden, it was like, well, hold on a second. What does it mean to be a Christian? Are we supposed to do all of these things? And look with me at verse 20. Here's where the Jerusalem council comes down on. But, but you should write to them, the Gentile Christians, to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what have been, has been strangled from blood. So you're sitting there going, what in the world? Of all the things, this was a Greco-Roman culture. So I hope as we go through this, we're going to see this. You see, the Greco-Roman culture was the one worldview, ultimately, materialism. That was their worldview. All of life focused on three things. All of a sudden, you're going to see these banks are closer together to our culture than what we ever thought imaginable. The Greco-Roman culture were materialists, and they had three pursuits to get this. Health, prosperity, and safety. That's what governed everything they did. It governed what they did personally. It governed what they did nationally. Health, prosperity, and safety. So what, how did this bleed out into everyday life? I want us to look at life, worship, and politics as a Greco-Roman. Everyday life for them was to live in a patriarchal society. That means there was a one dominant male in the family, whether he was still living or whether he was dead. And he called the shots. The family got their security and their direction from the patriarch. They were both, both patriarchal men and they were patriarchal institutions. And if you think about what does that look like, just think of what the Catholic Church look, used to look like. Everybody got their call from this. You didn't choose what church you went to. You went to the parish church. That's a patriarchal society. The Romans were 
that. They were a class system. There was no middle class. You were either the elite or you were the poor serving class. They were in those classes and most people stayed in the classes that they were born into. The interesting thing about Roman culture is that Rome whooped, so to speak, using the, our vernacular, they, they, they whooped the Greeks, but the Greeks whooped them culturally. That's why we call it the Greco-Roman culture. That they won the military battle and they took over the cities, but the Greek culture won the day. There's nothing that's so important to understand as we get into Corinthians than to understand how Greek people thought of sexuality. It is critical. Greek sexuality in the Greco-Roman age was about male dominance. It was about power, control, and conquest. It was not about, it was not about devotion, intimacy, or faithfulness. I would say faithfulness at least for the men. Homosexuality among Greeks was okay as long as it was done by the dominant male. Pedophilia was okay as long as it was done by the dominant male. Remember their point. Power, control, conquest. Their personal of health, prosperity, and safety, and all this pursuit. Morality for them in this was not an issue. Their wives were to be faithful so they could secure the family line. But they did not, the men did not have to be. This was everyday life. This was where the Corinthian church lived, and this was why the letter was written to those people. How about worship? What did worship look like? First of all, if I had a, like a Roman person, citizen right here, they'd be sitting there going, I don't know why you're dividing this up with life, worship, and politics anyway. They're not three things. They're only one. And that's true. It's an important part of their cultural reality. They did not separate. There was no church and state. Religion existed to get the people what they wanted. Remember what they were? They were materialists. So their religion was simply a means to get to their material ends. That's why religion and immorality could coexist. They did not connect. The fact that the men were out there doing with what they pleased, with whoever they wanted to please with, was no problem at all. They could be highly religious and highly immoral at the same time. They were a pluralistic culture. I'm going to give you a couple of words. They were polytheistic, which means they worshipped a pantheon of gods. They took over a culture, they would absorb their gods into their pantheon. They were also henotheistic. What does that mean? It means that, picking on Jeff and Tom, they could worship in their home two different gods, no problem. They're pluralistic. You worshipped a small demigod in your home to make sure that your family was safe. You worshipped a different one, no problem. That was the culture in which they lived in. This is really important to understand in worship. What they were doing was paying tribute to the pantheon of gods so that their gods might bless them. This was not, this was not about faith. This was not about relationship. They thought that was ridiculous. The center of their worship and prayer life was to obtain self Safety, health, and prosperity. Do we not need to pause and ask what the center of ours? Because to be a pagan 
was to simply pray to the gods so that they might give you what you wanted, safety, health, and prosperity. No relationship, just rituals. The rituals had to be done as prescribed so that the gods might bless you. There was two kinds of this bled out in. House worship, temple worship. House worship, that is what, how we would worship God, the gods, as a family, would be like we said. You have a demigod, they brought you, maybe your husband traveled. That God would you'd pray to the God that provided safety. Maybe it was a God who provided fertility or made your crops grow or, or whatever it might be. That was your house God. Not only that, they prayed to their ancestors. They revered, remember, they were patriarchal. They, they prayed to their ancestors. They prayed to them so that they, in some way, if there was an afterlife, and it's very vague in Greco-Roman culture, that they might help them along so that the gods might bless them. They also had temple worship. Distinct, but all part of their daily life. And temple worship was, was governed by the ruling class. That was the elite. They would put on these we would call them shindigs. They would put on these big, huge feasts. They would bring these animals in and they would kill them. And then Romans had this thing. They would just eat and gorge themselves till they threw up and then they would just start eating again. Immorality and anything that went on with that was absolutely fine and part of their worship. With this, this is an important cultural point. It's going to come up in Corinthians. They would oftentimes not only give out money during that time, they would also have food that was able to be received by the poor, by the other class. This was a problem in the church. Should they partake in that? How about politics? Well, there was no voting. Remember they called Caesar Lord, the emperor was thought to have a closer connection, greater favor with the gods. And so he was venerated along with the demigods. Some even given them some divine status. So what did it mean then? Okay, that's what, that's what it meant to be a Greco-Roman. How did they treat Jews and Christians? Okay, now we're really getting into what it meant to be, to be a Christian there. But what did it mean to be a Jew? Well, do you ever, have you ever noticed, you ever studied history, the Jews for a period of time lived in, lived in pretty much peace with, with the Roman society compared to Christians. Why was that? It was because the, the Romans had respect. Remember, they're pluralist. They had respect for ancient religions. And they thought that they see Judaism as an ancient religion. And they thought it was ridiculous. But they were okay with it, provided that they did not show a threat to the state. If you threaded, brought threat upon Rome, you brought threat upon them, and they would destroy you. Remember the Nazis? Remember how they taught the German people that the Jews were a threat to the German way of life? And that they had absolutely no problem in exterminating them. That's exactly what it meant. If, if the Jews had it okay, as long as they didn't pose a threat. But you see, Christianity was seen as a new religion. They did not tie it to Judaism. They saw it as a new religion, so they seen it as superstitious. Ridiculous. Think about this for a minute now. You've got their culture over here. This is just basics. 
Christianity was a faith-based belief centering on a devoted relationship with their one God. Now think about that as as a Greco-Roman. Christianity refused to worship or pay tribute to to any other than Jesus Christ alone. Listen to this. This These next two things are important. Christianity recognized no class system in its community. No matter whether you were a leader, whether you were a slave. If you're in the family of God, you're in the family. Christ, listen, this is important. Christ was the patriarch of this new family. Of all Christians. He was no longer your daddy, whether alive nor dead. It no longer was the emperor. It was Jesus Christ. He was the patriarch. He called the shots, and when they willingly followed him, and they called him Lord. That's what it meant to be a Christian. You can see what kind of problem would that create in that culture. Christian temples were places where the community would gather. They would gather and sing and worship, speak to their God. So let's ask a question. How were the Corinthians navigating these two complete different ways of seeing life and reality? The truth is the Corinthian church wasn't doing that good. They weren't doing good. Because that's one side of the bank. How about the other? What's the other side of the bank? It's where me and you live. It's what you have to get up and go to work to every day. It's when you turn on whatever news channel you want to watch. Fox or NBC or the BBC, whatever. We've got to know a little bit of history here. If you do not learn your history, your children will repeat it. We need to learn our history. You see, there was a time when Jesus Christ was in the center of a culture. It was. Up until Constantine, by and large... We lived in a pre-Christian context. That is, Christianity on the margins doing amazing things. And when Constantine rose to power in the 4th century, something distinct happened. All of a sudden, life, worship, and politics was governed by the church. 500 years ago. It's not, in Forest's history, that's not long. 500 years ago, belief in God was the default. And to be an atheist was to believe in unicorns. <laughs> it was that ridiculous that short amount of time ago. That was the default. But if you know your history, you know it did not stay that way. Individualism, Christ was removed and the individual was placed in the center. This was the rise of secularism. Secularism has three non-negotiable values that it holds dear above absolutely everything else. Yes, God too. Individualism, freedom, and equality. Those are the non-negotiable values. In other words, it says this, I can believe or I cannot believe. I can think for myself I can go where I please. I can go to our church if I want to, where I want to, when I want to. And you don't have a say. By the way, that wasn't the case at one point in history. This is what secularism brings. Secularism and this goal is the individual human flourishing. That's his goal. His goal is 
for me as a, would be a secularist is that I personally, human, flourish. That means that I need to be thinking about my individual self, my needs, my freedom, my equality. This is not a simple issue. This is not as simply as saying, bad. It's not. It's complicated. If you know your history, you know what happened when, when Christendom reigned. What did secularism do? It brought both positive and negative. By the way, the Protestant Reformation was a step in that direction. All of a sudden, you didn't have to go to the parish church. You could go to another church. Wasn't the case. Equality for women and civil rights came from this correction. But here's the reality. Secularism moves us in a particular direction. It moves us towards a divide between the secular and the sacred. It causes a divide between religion and society that says, your Christianity saves your soul, but it has no opinion in government, it has no opinion in education, it has no opinion in politics or business, just stay out of it. Sound familiar? It's the world that we live in. How does that affect our worship like right now? How is it could potentially, right now in King's Mountain, how did secularism affect our every church's worship today? Let me read this. This is not mine. It's a quote. See if any of this resonates. We take part because we choose to do so. We choose to do so because we like it, or it makes us feel good about ourselves, or because we enjoy praying and singing with others. It gives us a quickly fading experience of togetherness, a passing thrill of religious excitement, but it does not impose the constraints of discipline and commitment. It merely satisfies some obscurely felt need for the time being, but they will have to be fresh and different and exciting every time if it is going to keep drawing us back. That is worship in a secular age. And brothers and sisters, that is the air we breathe. When Christ removes from the center, the individual is placed in the center. And when the individual is placed in the center, sooner or later, anything is placed in the center. That's where secular, secular leads. It leads to pluralism. Pluralism, you see, is a privatizing of our spirituality. It's the wholesale retreat of religion into the private sphere of your life. It says, this is true for you, and this is true for me, and we're just fine with that. There's no absolute truth for anyone. You can believe what you want to believe. Just keep it to yourself. I got an interesting twist here, and I'm not sure whether you believe it, but history proves it, and one day our history will as well. To the shock of the atheist and the agnostic who might be listening today. This world is not becoming more secular. We are secular. We are becoming more pluralistic. And here's what happens when a culture becomes pluralistic. Personal spirituality becomes the, the, the dominant thing in the day. We're not becoming less spiritual. We're becoming more spiritual. It's just my personal spirituality. I can be fulfilled any which way I choose. That's where we're headed, brothers and sisters. And 
understand what happens necessarily in cultural history. When pluralism becomes the norm, Christianity is thrust to the margins. In other words, we go back to where we started. When a pre-Christian culture, we lived in the margins. Pluralism thrust us. This begins to make sense, brothers and sisters. We go back now to 1 Peter. Look at chapter 2. You know, we read these things and we say, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. Inside we're going, hold on a second. I'm an American. I'm an American. Above all else, I'm an American. Listen to what he says. The people who are living in that day. 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Why did he call them sojourners and exiles? Because as Christians they were. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a Christian who lives in the margins. You're marginalized in society. Alienated from relationships. Threatened with the loss of society, honor, and standing. You have no voice. And if you do have a voice, it means nothing more than a person who stands beside of you. You see, listen to me now. Christianity's ultimate goal is not human flourishing. It's not. Think about it. Just let the scripture run through your head. Christ instructs us to die to ourselves. Christ instructs us to consider others more important than ourselves. Christ instructs us to turn the other cheek. Christ instructs us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Christ instructs us to enter into the weeping and pain of other people. And that is not promoting my human flourishing. At least not the way the secular is define it. Is this good news? That we are, going to, we are now and will be thrust to the margins of society? It is, brothers and sisters. It is. What do you mean? What do you mean? There's certain things that die when Christianity is put in the margins. And the one thing that dies is nominal Christianity. Praise God. Let it die. You see, when, when you make Christianity the law of the land, it benefits everybody to be a Christian. If I want to get in public office, I need to be a Christian. If I want to get voted for president, I need to be a Christian. If I want to be on the city council, I need to be a Christian. Christianity thrust to the margins, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. When nominal Christianity dies, we will not equate church activity to church growth. When nominal Christianity dies, we will not equate a better experience with actual gospel transformation. And when nominal Christianity dies, we will not see mass professions with no gospel life that follows. There will be no advantage to be a, a, being a Christian other than if Christ is risen and reigning and mighty to save. So how are we supposed to do this? You see, first thing I want you to understand, and I hope, you, I hope you've got it this morning, that the bank between Corinth and Kings Mountain, North Carolina, is closer than you think. You see it? 
is closer than you think. We just have to be willing to take an honest look at their culture and ours. So what are we supposed to do? Sit around at the parties or the barbershop or maybe on our Facebook group and complain and get cynical and circle the wagons? No. This is just true, brothers and sisters. This is true. Christianity has always thrived in the margins. It's where we grow. In the margins, we have something to offer. A devoted community that improves incredibly attractive. Like it or not, brothers and sisters, like it or not by the secularist and the atheist and whoever, God haunts them. He does. He haunts the secular age. He haunts them with an unavoidable desire for goodness, community, and for something that is transcendent. That is what kept the philosophers in the Greek culture awake at night. Something more. And we from the margins say, let me tell you about my Jesus. So how do we live the gospel life in this present age? I want you to go now with me to Acts. Somebody, does anybody remember? Where did Paul stop before he went to Corinth? Anybody remember? Athens. If you studied anything about Athens, Athen, Athens was at one time the center of Greek culture, philosophy, education. It was the center of all of it. The Romans came in and destroyed, actually, Corinth and then rebuilt it. But it was still a, a place of knowledge and learning. It was, it was still an important part, even with Rome. So Acts 17, look at verse 16. Paul stops in Athens. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them, his fellow brothers, to go to, to do his work, his spirit was provoked with him when that he saw the city was full of idols. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18. Some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching a foreign divinity. Because he was preaching, what? Jesus and the resurrection. So here's what I want us to see. Remember the question, how do we live in this present age? The question is, what can we observe here? What does Paul do? He walks into this culture. Paul says, we just simply have to ask, what did Paul see? Right? What did he see? He saw a culture. What did he, what did he see about this culture? Verse 16, it's full of idols. This culture's full of idols. It's very religious. It's what he ends up saying to them. But idolatry, God's everywhere. So what did he do? Did he write his congressman? No. He engaged it. Did you see it? This is, what I'm, this is the point this morning. We're not being called just to live a gospel life with our holy three friends. We're called to engage the culture. This is what Paul does. How does he do it? 
He goes and talks to the most religious, which was his normal custom, if you remember. But what does he also do? Where does he go? What does it say? Somebody tell me. Verse 17. The marketplace. Why did he go to the marketplace? That's where everybody was. That's where the other people was, right? Everybody. That's where we would go. I mean, that's, he went to Walmart, right? <laughs> went to Target. That's where we hang out. That's where we go shopping. There he engaged people. It says in verse 16, he was provoked. That's not, I'm mad, I'm going to get my marbles and go play in somebody else's sandbox. That's, he was provoked and moved towards it. This is exactly what he does. So what does he do? Look at verses 22 to 24. He found something in the culture that he could affirm. And that's where he started. That's an important evangelistic moment right here. He looks at the culture. He honestly sees it for what it is. Pagan, idolatry, immoral. Yes, yes, yes. And then he looked around at something, a starting place where it could start. And he found an idol to the unknown God. And he says, that's my starting spot right there. That's my gospel bridge into this culture. And he says, can I tell y'all about him? Well, they brought it up. (laughs) It was their little idol standing over there. So where did he go with it? Wish we had more time. We don't. He starts up at creation. Creator of all. Lord of all. He gets to their sin. The gospel of repentance is preached. And there is a response. In verse 32 to 34, some mock him and some believe. So now we're back to our text. Right? All of that to get back where we started. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. You see, Paul in Athens is simply the picture in your mind when you read 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. How do you, how do you respond in an age that is, that is against you, that is going to slander you, that is going to push you to the margins and say, sit down and shut up? How are we supposed to live? 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17 teaches us this. But above all this morning, just hit me afresh last night. Verse 15. How should we live in this secular age? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's our non-negotiable, brothers and sisters. Not my personal human flourishing. For honoring Christ as holy may well cost me my life or my family's life. But it's right because He's alive. That's our non-negotiable. It matters not the culture. Jesus Christ is alive. And we honor Him. And we honor Him in a particular way. It's how we live. And it's how we engage the culture that we live. We honor Christ. Look at verse 14. Through gospel boldness. Do you see it? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Doesn't matter what they bring on you. Oh, didn't Jesus have something to say about this? This means don't be afraid. Don't be mentally distressed. Don't be anxious on the inside. Honor Christ with gospel boldness in these situations. Why? Because we have been prepared. 
15. Honor Christ is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason of the hope that's within you. All right, mamas, do you remember it? Your little child sitting there at the table. Some of you may still have child, children as young. They're at that age where they can communicate, just don't want to, don't need to, grunting and screaming, it works just fine, thank you. That, that little milk bottle, little sippy cups, maybe this, just... So what do they do? Uh, 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 you know, right? So what do we say to them? Use your words. Right? Use your words. Not going to get it. Got, got to use your words. That's what Christ is telling us today. No, your gospel life's not enough. You got to use your words. We got a hope that lives within us. He says, you got to be ready to make a defense. That's an apology. For the inward hope that we have, that's what Paul's doing in Athens to the most educated philosophers of the day. And he preaches Jesus Christ resurrected. He didn't bring some prop in there to try to get their attention. He brought the gospel of Jesus Christ and that was enough. That really deserved an amen. Christianity is not true. Because we are few or great, it's true because our Jesus is alive. And brothers and sisters, this is just true. Follow the reasoning. It is unholy and dishonoring to follow Christ and say nothing. How do we do this here at Battleground Community Church? We do this through our corporate worship. We do this through our growth groups. We do this through our Wednesday Equip that's teaching you to do exactly what I'm doing right now. We also need to honor Christ. This is critical. With gospel humility. Do you see it? It says, yet, do it. But do it with gentleness and respect. It's not just about doing it. These words means do it with a mild, even-tempered, and doing it, showing a profound respect for that person. That's what that means. It means that when I share the gospel, I'm looking at someone who has dignity and value because they are made in the image of God. That's what it means. Do you have respect for the homosexual? That's a hard question, isn't it? Let me ask you something. If you don't, then how will you engage them with the gospel with gentleness and respect? The answer is, you won't. We have no option, brothers. We have the hope. They lived in a culture where homosexuality was normal. And yet, Paul would say, and such were some of you. We engage them with the gospel, but we do it with gentleness and respect. It is dishonoring to Christ and unholy to be disrespectful, rude, or condescending to those we engage with the gospel. We honor Christ by boldness, by the way we prepare ourselves, by our humility, and by our holiness. This is Paul's point in Corinth. You see it in verse 16. 
He must do everything with a good conscience. Listen to me. This is what this means. This doesn't mean I do what's right and my conscience is clear. That means that your conscience is informed by the Word of God. That the God's Word informs your Christian conscience. And you can say, I have read it, I have believed it, I have practiced it, and my mind and conscience is clear because I have obeyed the Word of God. He says, know that. We live by that. And even when you're slandered, your life will leave them saying, yeah, Jason did it, but he... Yeah. Doggone it, I just don't like him. But it's hard to find anything that you can put your finger on. That's exactly the qualifications of a godly person. You see, it is a life that is lived above reproach. Why? Because it is living out of the spiritual blessings that are continually flowing into the life of that believer. So it matters not, brothers and sisters, whether we read Paul's writing or or Peter's writing. They both teach us how to live the gospel life, not only in the Greco-Roman age, but in ours. Interesting, Acts 18.1 says, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And next week, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Corinth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for its power in our life. And Lord, I pray that we were encouraged and equipped, that we are, that we are equipped, God, to live in this age with boldness and grace, and courage and faith, and hope. I pray, Lord, that you would inside of us stir up this gospel life within us, Lord, that we may engage the culture. Sinking all around us. Oh, God, school's about to start back. And our young people go to college and our kids go to school. And they engage people with no hope other than the present. Oh God, it will work. Just in me, in our children, in our young adults, and in us. That we may engage. This is not just culture. These are people. Made in your image. Oh God, give us a burden for the lost oh God forgive us that our prayer lives look more like pagans than Christians oh God that my prayer life would be saturated with your promises oh God that our prayer life would be saturated by those people that Lord if you don't save them they're not going to believe Do that work in us, God. May we not fall into legalistic rituals. But embrace a living hope. It is that living hope now that we come to to worship you. So receive our worship. As we gather, as the redeemed have done for thousands of years. Let's stand to our feet and worship the King.